Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 227th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Leanne Miko. Leanne is the founder of Equilise Financial, a fully virtual advisory firm offering ongoing planning services for nearly $500 a month and currently serving 45 creatives within the LGBTQ community. What's unique about Leanne, though, is that she's been able to realize financial security for the first time in her own life by focusing on serving a niche community that she belongs to herself, for whom she helps create their own financial stability despite the uncertainties around their income streams. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Leanne emphasizes her planning-centric services by charging a financial planning fee of nearly $500 a month and then including the first $500,000 investment management as part of the planning fee with an AUM fee of just 60 basis points over the threshold. How bringing asset management into her financial planning service offering has helped create some additional stickiness for clients. Why Leanne enlisted the help of a copywriter to clearly communicate on her website her process and value proposition to help create buy-in from new clients. And the screening process that Leanne implemented that requires prospective clients to acknowledge that they understand what the financial planning fees are going to be before they ever book a second meeting with her. We also talk about how Leanne has implemented George Kinder's evoke process into her practice and adapted his famous three questions to apply specifically for the LGBTQ creatives she serves. How Leanne weaves their answers into a vision meeting to paint a clear picture of what they want their lives to look like, which is then followed by an obstacles meeting where Leanne and her clients set a game plan for anything that could get in the way of them realizing that vision. And how Leanne's own experiences as a member of the LGBTQ community has helped her better understand and provide unique and differentiated services for the clients she serves, given their own struggles with income uncertainty that comes from being a working creative in Los Angeles. And be certain to listen to the end, where Leanne shares her own story about how her family's money and securities growing up pushed her towards a career in financial planning. How a failed succession plan left her deep in debt, but still ended up being the catalyst to push her to launch her own firm. And how the success that Leanne has had as a business owner serving no more than 50 clients has given her the financial security she was seeking, the opportunity to donate a portion of her annual profits to charity, and the chance to look ahead to ways that she can pay that success forward to others entering the financial planning profession. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Leanne Miko. Welcome, Leanne Miko, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I'm really excited to be here. I'm looking forward to today's discussion and 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 talking a little bit about your your advisory business and your journey through the business. You know, you have I feel like is is certainly relative to the industry's history a a, a very unique firm with a focus with a specialization in the LGBTQ community and particularly with creatives in the LGBTQ community and and. For our industry, I feel like it's it's really just a very, very recent phenomenon that was even okay to be out in the financial services industry. And, and even at some firms, I know that's still a challenge to, to be out even amongst your coworkers in the firm. And so this, I guess like this idea, this phenomenon to me of 
having a niche specialization in members of the LGBTQ community and making that a core part of not just your identity as a person, but your identity as a business and your identity and what you do in the in the advisor marketplace, to me is is just an incredible like shift and revolution for where the business is over the past, I guess, five and 10 and 15 years. And, and so I'm excited both to talk a little bit about just how much the industry seems to be changing with respect to diversity and and what you've done and what you've been able to build and saying like, this is where I'm going to plant my flag and build my business and grow serving my community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the almost 15 years that I've been in the industry, I've certainly seen a, a pretty big shift in the number of advisors who are who are catering specifically to the LGBTQ community. So it excites me that there's more representation, which means that more of the LGBTQ community will hopefully feel comfortable in reaching out to advisors. But yeah, I'm really excited. I've, I always said that I, you know, I wanted to work with communities that represented who I am as an individual and it, I'm, you know, as a member of the LGBTQ community, it just made sense to, to pursue that route. I am also curious, one of the challenges I hear to this as a, as a focus, as a specialization, and it's not unique to serving the LGBTQ community. I, I hear it for a lot of types of, of specializations in, in serving communities or serving groups, including even the called the the niche of serving women mm-hmm. is, you know, hey, like, you know, you work with LGBTQ creatives, like, you know, creatives are creatives and creatives have a set of financial planning problems and making maybe business problems. What is it that makes it different or special or, or, or differentiated to say, I serve LGBTQ creatives? Like, what is it to you that makes that a, a, a way to differentiate or a way to specialize in the marketplace, as opposed to simply saying, I, I work with creatives or professionals or the the members of the LGBTQ community that you work with? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, for me, it's like looking at both of them separately, they tend to be both be underrepresented communities. So, you know, when you put them together, you get two communities that have oftentimes been kind of ignored or left out of the equation for, you know, different reasons. You know, and I can, I, I historically did work, you know, was, oh, LGBTQ community didn't matter what you did, whether you were creative, uh, just a, a plain old W-2 kind of employee of a company, and then I also had a kind of crossover where I was getting a lot of creative clients. And for me, you know, what's really important to me is I, you know, I always kind of root for the underdog. It's just the nature of who I am and kind of my past and what have you. And so I thought, you know, putting two communities together that have, have historically been kind of neglected made a lot of sense because I could kind of hit two birds with one stone. You know, there's there's a lot of financial insecurity in both communities. And so it wasn't, it was more or less kind of the need that was there. So I don't use it as as a differentiator necessarily, because certainly advisors can work with with each of those separately. But you know, when you work with creatives, you're also looking at working with people who don't have traditional income situations or asset situations. And then so there is a specialized focus there as well. So can you talk about that a little bit more? Like what do you mean when you say there's a lot of financial insecurity in in these communities. Sure. You know, for the LGBTQ communities specifically, you know, you, you mentioned being out earlier. And so for a lot of people, you know, though, you know, we're in 2021 now and it's becoming more socially acceptable to be out, it's still not completely acceptable. And so that's definitely on a, on a case-by-case basis. So maybe at large, the community is more accepting, but there's still fears of, of coming out at work, coming out to, to family, you know, so that creates insecurities, right? So if you if you can't get married because you're afraid of your employer finding out that you are married to someone of the same sex, you know, that's an insecurity right there. The the access to financial guidance for LGBTQ community has been limited. So 
the confidence in making decisions creates the insecurity. So a lot of things like that, where there's just not as much access to information, there's, you know, people who maybe their family wasn't accepting of them and they were, you know, kicked out of the home and forced to kind of figure things out on their own. And then, you know, left in a situation where achieving any sort of financial independence was not really something that was easy for them to come by. Those are all big themes and things I've seen in the community, both in terms of at large, but also my own, you know, friend group of, of people who, who I've surrounded myself with over, you know, my adulthood and even, you know, teen years. Well, to me, that's always been one of the interesting ways that many of us end up finding sort of niches or specializations or, or places that we want to focus our careers. You know, I, I often get questions of, you know, do do you have to be a member of blank in order to serve blank as your as your niche and your specialization? And and I've I've always been of the the mindset like, no, I don't think that's a a requirement. I mean, you can learn the the needs and the challenges of whatever community is that you serve and and serve them and serve them well but being a member of the community yourself and having lived the trials and tribulations and the pain points and the challenges of the community does does kind of give you like very good firsthand experience and understanding of exactly what the challenges are so that when you get to come to the table as a financial planner you know you can accurately say like I understand the financial needs and challenges of the people that I'm serving here because I've lived it. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in my friends' lives. I've, I've witnessed it firsthand. I know, I know what's going on here and I know how to help. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I go back and forth with this idea of people who are outside of a community kind of focusing on and specializing in it. And, and you know, I agree that it's not impossible and it's not kind of, you know, a complete like no But I do think oftentimes it, it becomes a, a marketing ploy or a marketing tactic to kind of break into, so to speak, those those communities to, to generate, you know, revenue off of them and, and make them clients at least. And so to some extent, and this is just inherent in my being, you know, I'm, I'm a little wary of people who, who do that because there is a certain level of understanding that comes along with being a member of the community that you're serving that is invaluable. And, and quite frankly, is in, in large part why clients end up choosing you is because of that relation, because of the connection there. So help us understand a little bit the the advisory firm itself, like tell us a little bit about your business and and who you serve and what you do and 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 what this looks like in practice. Yeah, absolutely. So I started the beginning phases of the the firm in, in late 2016 and launched as as a fee only independent firm. And my focus has always been on the LGBTQ side of things. Though at that point it was it was more broad. It was just L- LGBTQ folks, women, young professionals. I was like, what are the boxes that I check off that are me and then who I'd want to work with? And realizing that, you know, that was pretty much everyone who needs help. So basically we've been around for a little over four years. And at this point, 45 current client relationships and, and 25 of those are purely financial planning only. So there's no investment management on that side of things. And then the, the balance 20 I do both financial planning and investment management for them. And the assets uh, between those 20 households is about $15.5 million as of yesterday-ish. And I, I guess the more important thing also is the firm is Equalis Financial. It was kind of a play on Equalis, which is Latin for equal. And so I just kind of took the A off because I figured that might be a little bit easier for people to spell and, and pronounce. <laughs> but the idea behind it was equality equal. I wanted to work with people who hadn't traditionally been considered, you know, unequal. And so that's typically who I work with. And that has kind of been narrowed down and focused into this LGBTQ 
creatives, and other thoughtfully ambitious professionals, which my super amazing copywriter, Kayla Hollitz, came up with. And it is so perfectly fitting. So help me understand the way this evolved, the way this changed, that you said you, you, you early on were just broadly into anyone who is a member of the LGBTQ community and then have kind of winnowed down over time towards working with creatives. So I know for, for so many advisors, if I'm particularly when they're launching, like if, if they agree or believe in or want to move in the direction of, of having a more focused practice, of having a niche, there's this like, I have to pick the right thing the day that I launch. I can't <laughs> tell anybody I'm doing it unless I get like the perfect thing from day one because I don't want to say the wrong thing and then I'll like lose everybody that I was never going to get. Mm-hmm. And, and like we get so sometimes stuck on this, you know, you started in that direction, right? I am going to focus into the LGBTQ community, but then you have winnowed down further from there. So I guess I'm wondering like, how did that come about? And and was that a, a like a plan strategy? I'm going to start here and get more focused over time. Or is that something that happened more organically? I started here and as the business grew, I just ended out being more focused and said, okay, let's own it. I mean, I, I wish that was the case. At the beginning, right, everyone says they have this focus and, you know, I had the focus, but the reality was at that point, you know, the question was, can you fog a mirror? Yes. Great. Become a client. Didn't care who you were, what you had, how old you were. It didn't matter. It was like, can you pay me? Do you need help? Let's do this. So despite having kind of that focus, it certainly, you know, was kind of like on paper only, so to speak. Was there an issue? Because again, as I hear this come up so frequently as a fear and a concern, like were, were you out there and saying I focus on the LGBTQ community, but then I'll still take anyone who fogs a mirror. Did you get anyone else once you were saying that? Or did you not say that because you were afraid you would accidentally rule out someone else who might fog a mirror and at this point will take any clients or just getting started? Like, how did you actually balance that in practice? Right. So, you know, when I first launched and on my website, you know, I, I had basically these kind of blocks of text that's, okay, here's who we specialize in. And it was LGBTQ community, women, and young professionals. And, and quite frankly, that is a very broad net between the three of them. But then, of course, because I was super insecure when it first started, I also put a little blurb that said, but we help everyone. Because, yeah, sure, you know, there was, there was a lack of confidence and in, in that security and that people were actually going to to want to work with me. So I kind of wanted to leave it open-ended to make sure that at least I was able to get some clients. And over time, you know, I would say that, I wouldn't say a majority, but a good amount of the clients that were coming to me did at least fit into one of those buckets. And what happened over time, you know, as I continued to hone my craft and I began, you know, really focusing on specific types of clients, I was realizing a trend and it wasn't intentional. And so being in LA and being a member of the LGBTQ community, there are a lot of creative people in LA. You know, that's where the entertainment industry, you know, is, you know, aside from a couple of other big metro areas. And so I was finding this trend. I was getting a lot of LGBTQ creatives. So I was getting writers, producers, directors who, you know, were kind of in the the sweet spot of their career where it was just taking off. And I started to realize, oh wait, this is probably where I should I should focus. And so it just it's taken, it took probably th- three years for me to slowly start saying no more frequently. And saying no is a very difficult thing for me because I want to help everyone because everyone has a story. 
but I started recognizing that I was, as I was working with more creatives, I was, I was getting a better understanding of the nuances, the intricacies, everything that was going on with their finances. And as I was getting, you know, I would get a, a client who had a situation that I wasn't as in tune with or familiar with. And I was spinning my wheels endlessly trying to educate myself on, on these aspects of, of financial planning that like weren't my sweet spot. And I started just realizing that my time is too valuable for that. Meg Bartelt actually was really helpful in this and helping to kind of frame this idea of like, she doesn't work with people who are retired because she doesn't want to have to know all of this stuff about social security and withdrawal strategies. And I was like, that is, that's really smart. I don't need to fill my brain space with all of this information if it's not in my target. Just become an expert in this creative, this LGBTQ creative need and only work with those people and do it really freaking well. And so it was definitely a process and it probably was late 2019 where I I kind of had that moment of, okay, I need to make this switch. And it did take quite a while for me to to fully get there. And and I'll admit that I'm I'm not completely there to where I won't say no to someone if if there's like a really, you know, good connection and vibe as as a human. So just help me understand further, like what, just what got you there to say, I want to I want to make that switch. I, I I think I have to start saying no to at least some or many of the the people that aren't in my in my target domain in, in this focus of LGBTQ creatives. I mean, what was it specifically the the time grinds? Like, geez, these other clients take me a long time, and the ones that are in my niche really actually don't take me a long time because after I've worked with a couple dozen LGBTQ creatives, I kind of know most of the problems and the issues that are going to come up and what the, what the likely solutions are, because that's what happens. Mm-hmm. You kind of get repeatable expertise. Like, was it the time thing that pushed you to make some change here or or something else that just that got you to the point of actually saying, I think I got to start saying no to some of these? Yeah, that was definitely the time was a huge factor, you know, recognizing that this, you know, creating repeatable processes, understanding kind of the fundamentals, like how, I mean, pretty much to a T when they reach out to me, like I can explain their situation before they do. And they're like, how did you know that? I'm like, well, because pretty much everyone who's in your position is dealing with the same thing. So being able to come up with a process and and don't get me wrong, every situation is still a little bit different because again, that would make life way too easy if there was too much similarity there. So having that kind of process, understanding what they need. But I would say to some extent, I started to see something beneath the surface on more of just kind of like the human psychological level. A lot of the creatives that I work with come from volatile experiences in the past. So as a creative, you know, especially in the entertainment industry, you don't know essentially what job is next. So say you, you know, great, you got got staffed on this show this season. You don't know if that's going to continue, right? So this idea of like, you could be making $400,000 this year, but next year you literally could be making zero. And so this creates an, an incredible amount of, of insecurity, financial insecurity and instability that wreaks havoc mentally and emotionally. So not, not necessarily a function of being a member of the LGBTQ community, but just like this is the life of creatives, particularly high income creatives in LA where good gigs pay a lot of money and not having a gig is still the good old fashioned zero. Exactly. And so the LGBTQ element on top of that is is this idea of connection, right? The fear of going to someone and and having to kind of not be your authentic true self for fear of judgment or what have you. 
whether the person is going to respond to you uh, negatively when they, if they find out that you're a member of the LGBTQ community. This idea that a lot of folks, again, that I've worked with in the community do come from more insecure backgrounds as well. And so that certainly plays into it from that, that insecurity level or of having, you know, growing up in small towns where it wasn't really okay for them to be queer and then coming to LA and, and struggling mightily financially and, and, you know, tack on the creative side of that thing. So there's definitely an intersection between those two where they, they, you know, overlap. But I think, you know, the, the LGBTQ element, you know, more than anything is just that comfort, that peace of mind of knowing that they're not going to be judged, that they, that, you know, they're working with an advisor who knows their experience, who knows what it's like, who's been through it, who recognizes some of those pitfalls and and, and the situations that fortunately aren't such an issue anymore, but, you know, still plays into the insecurity of being queer and creative. So then help me understand a little bit more of, of just what the, what the business looks like. I mean, what are you, what are you doing for clients in, in practice when someone is a LGBTQ creative and says like, Leanne, this sounds cool. Like, sign me up. I want to be a client. Right. <laughs> what happens next? How does this actually work? That has also changed in recent years. In early 2020, before the pandemic hit, uh, I was fortunate enough to spend a week in Hawaii doing George Kinder's Evoke training. And that was a pretty impactful, empowering week where I just came to truly understood the power of empathy and conversation it's where, you know, to some extent, I recognize that I had been doing financial planning all wrong, you know, in, in some regards. And so how, how so like what 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 were you doing that year and how you were thinking like, oh, gosh, that was not right. <laughs> I need to change that. I think, you know, most humans were were solution oriented. Our inclination is to fix. And as an advisor, it is not our job to fix or, or come up with solutions necessarily. Sure. On like the money end or the technical end of things, you got to come up with things. But, you know, when a client comes to you, you know, any advisor, you know, worth the weight and salt, they'll find out what are your goals? What are you actually trying to achieve before actually, you know, crunching numbers, doing a plan, putting that stuff together? But I think what was always missing was helping clients to actually uncover or discover what their goals truly are. Anyone can say, oh, I'd love to buy a house or, oh, I'd love to, to travel here. But it's really getting to the root of what was important to them and helping them to discover that and prioritize it. And that it wasn't my job to come up with their solutions. It was, it's my job to guide them and help them make decisions that are in their best interest, right? So removing my bias that I might, you know, put on them saying, oh, you know, I, I love slash hate when clients say, well, what would you do? And my answer is always, you know, it doesn't matter what I would do. What do you want to do and, and, and why? What is the importance? What is the significance? And so it kind of pulled me back and I realized, like, I don't need to be the solution guru. I don't have to come up with, you know, the solutions for them, which took a tremendous weight off of my shoulders when I kind of had that realization. And so a big part of what I offer my clients is, is empathy, quite frankly, more empathy than, than the typical advisor and, and understanding where they're at. Part of that is born of my own experience of, with financial insecurity and instability in a volatile environment growing up. I can relate to those insecurities. It's, it's listening, like actually allowing them to speak uninterrupted, you know, not judging them, just letting them freely express what they truly want in life and making them feel heard and valued. And so that's what I offer, along with, of course, the technical side of things. So, you know, I do, I call it financial alignment planning, and it really is to align their financial lives. And, and I mean, align with, with their emotional, spiritual, physical, financial selves 
And so it's a pretty, pretty structured, lengthy process. And the fortunate part is when you work with creatives, they're already pretty far along in that process. They're already pursuing their passions, doing the things, you know, that their parents probably didn't necessarily want them to do, you know, pursue a career in the arts where you, quote unquote, don't make any money. And so they've already got a head start, which is, is really fantastic and, and wonderful for me to experience on, on the advisor end. So then it's a more focus on how do we create that stability and security that they yearn for, but that is so hard to come about in such a volatile industry. Interesting. This piece of how do you create more stability in a really unstable and secure environment becomes such a, a, a central theme. Like just it's, it's weaving through and coming up in almost all of what you're describing through the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So help me understand more of what that looks like in practice you said you just you 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 call it financial alignment planning like what what does that mean what do you do like when i say i'm i'm going to be a client now and we're getting started like what actually happens what's the first meeting and what are we talking about yeah so i try to follow kinder's evoke method pretty closely but because i'm a rebel i of course i had to <laughs> make it my own a little bit but essentially you know the first year is probably seven or eight meetings you know, the first meeting, I always tell people, you know, the discovery meeting is like going on your first date. We want to get to know each other, feel it out, see if it's, it's a good fit and if we want to actually commit to working together. And that discovery meeting really is where, you know, I, I find out, you know, what brought them to me, what they're looking to accomplish, what's important to them, you know, what is essential to living their ideal life. And that what that does is it also helps me understand kind of where they're at and whether this type of process is a good fit for them. I've, I've had people who just flat out said to me, I'm not having an existential crisis. Can we just do regular planning? <laughs> and like, sure, it, maybe this isn't for you, but unfortunately, it's the, it's the service I offer. And so she just wasn't a good fit. And so I think oftentimes in this discovery meeting, the, the primary feedback I'm getting from people is, this was not what I expected. And I've never experienced this before. And which is really powerful. And it kind of says to me that, you know, most advisors aren't doing planning right. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. But at the end of the day, they could be doing more. So then help me understand more of just what what questions are you asking? What are you saying that prospects are coming out of the meeting with, you know, nobody ever asked me this stuff before? It's funny because I'm not saying a whole lot. This meeting is them primarily speaking. And so the questions are, are very simple. And, and, you know, what is important to you? What is essential to living your ideal life? And, give, and just asking the open-ended questions, you know, the, the pause, the long pause, the, the anything else of it to help them really dig deep and pull those things to the surface that maybe they've kind of pushed down or just hadn't thought about in any sort of meaningful way in recognizing the connections. And so it's, it's the listening part. And I, you know, Ian Bloom said it, said it best, you know, he, he was in an experience with a client when people liken the process to therapy, it's because the only person that listens to you this intently is a therapist. Right. And I think just on a human level that speaks volumes to how poorly we're doing at listening to each other and providing space for each other to, to express what we're thinking, what is important, like it just, just communicating really. And so I think that's why a lot of times this gets like into to therapy because quite frankly, you know, we're, I'm listening with, with intent and I'm listening with empathy and allowing them to just be vulnerable and open and honest with, with a stranger really. And that's the bizarre part sometimes for me and for them. They're like, I can't believe we just like shared all of this. I don't even know you, <laughs> but that's the power of the process. And so 
discovery meetings for you in this context, like I would still be a prospect. We're we're not working together yet. This is the just getting to know you part of the process. And I'm presuming now these are virtual for you since we're in a pandemic environment. We can't really do them in person. Right. Yeah, they uh, they're virtual now. I did I did a couple before the world shut down, but you know at this point I've I've made the decision to go pretty much permanently remote, and so I don't imagine doing too many of these in person. Which I know it is an adjustment to to have these kind of more intimate conversations through a screen versus in person. But I think because everyone is now also so used to this idea of speaking to each other through a screen that it's not going to be so much of a concern anymore. But at the end of the day, plenty of clients are still crying. And, and feeling the emotions and feeling the process, even through a video screen. So though different, I think it is just as impactful. I guess that's part of what I was going to ask. Like, you know, can, can you get to this level of, of conversation and intimacy sitting on a Zoom right. meeting? <laughs> yeah, one would think not. But, you know, I was, I've been pleasantly surprised by the connection and the intimacy that I've been able to build with clients through video. Part of that is, is your body language. You know, a big piece of that is, you know, what is, what is behind you in the video and making sure you're setting yourself up in a space that is conducive to, to having these conversations. And the other piece is setting expectations, right? Telling clients, Hey, look, this is what we're going to be talking about. You know, it'd be really helpful if you didn't have distractions so you can get the most of it, which is hard to do these days, right? Especially if you've got kids or pets and everyone's at home and it's, it's not so easy but it's setting expectations. It's putting on your best face. Like I said, keeping distractions to a minimum and keeping that eye contact, you know, as much as you can in, in a video screen and just showing empathy physically as well as, you know, verbally. What happens next? Like we do our discovery meeting. You know, I heard about you, Leanne. I wanted to learn more about your services. We do this discovery meeting. Uh, I cry a little. I'm feeling well heard and understood. <laughs> like this seem this seems interesting. I've not had an experience like this before with an advisor. What comes next? I mean, do they do they get asked to sign up as a client at the end of that meeting? Do you do a follow up meeting? Do you send them something between the meetings? Like, how does it move forward from there? Yeah. So I am the world's worst salesperson. I just have this in, intense feeling of guilt almost if 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 someone if i feel like someone hasn't fully thought through their their decision making in the process i always want to make sure that there's no buyer's remorse i know it can be easy to get caught up in emotions and be like yes let's do this but basically you know towards the end of the discovery meeting i explain what the next couple of meetings look like i let them know ahead of time that you know the vision meeting which is the second meeting once they become a client there is some homework uh, and that's you know kinder three questions that i've kind of molded to be my own I, I give them a little bit of information on that and i help them understand what the importance of it you know just to get, kind of get that buy in so they understand that you know i'm not just some woo woo nut that there is a, a rhyme and reason to like what I'm doing. And so, you know, I, ha I we go through, I, you know, ask them if they have any, you know, remaining questions. And then typically I send a, a follow-up email. I let them know I'm going to send you a follow-up email and it has more information about next steps. I give them the, the fee quote and then, you know, I just kind of leave it open-ended. I, I tell them, you know, if and when you're ready to, to move forward, I'd love to work with you and leave it at that. Of course, if I don't want to work with them, that is not how I handle it. But, but typically that's how it goes. And, and so, you know, once they're ready, they, you know, they respond and we kind of get the, the whole onboarding process going. So are you actually quoting them a fee at the end of that, that initial meeting? You're like qu quoting them on the spot before they leave. Here's, here's what your fee will be if we move forward. Yeah, so I've I've taken an approach where I've I've simplified fees for the most part. So I used to have this really fun detailed complexity calculator on my website and I, I realized that it was it was creating too much confusion with clients and, and not understanding. So I, I took it off. 
And then I just got to a point where, you know, it just, there's a standard fee. It starts at, you know, at this point it's 5,400 for an individual and 6,600 for a couple for that's the, the full 12 month process. And pretty much that is standard. If there is more uh, complexity involved beyond kind of what I think would be the scope of, of the engagement, then I may, you know, increase the fee. So for the most part, they know essentially what they're likely paying before they even jump into the discovery meeting. And actually on my, when you go to book the meeting through Calendly, it makes you click or type, I understand under a statement that expresses what our fees are, because I was getting a lot of people reaching out who either weren't looking at the fees or just didn't think they applied to them. And so it was a lot of tire kickers who, who thought, you know, they were just going to cruise in and get a plan for, you know, a thousand bucks. So I, you know, they're very well aware of, of what the fees are. And so in that follow-up email, I will confirm whether, you know, the fee stayed that amount or whether there was any reason to, to increase it. So they, they have that, you know, at their ready. And so are you like, are you outright putting the fees on your website as well? Or like when they schedule, the fees are in the Calendly link, just so they know, I, just if you're asking them to, to confirm, do you understand the fees? I'm presuming at some point you've, you've got to put the fees in front of them so they can say, yes, right. we understand the fees. Yeah. So I definitely include the fees on my website. I'm definitely that person where if I go to any sort of service professional's website and there's no fees on it, I immediately close the window and, and move on to the next. Because you just... You, you want to know what it costs. You want to know what it takes. Yeah. It's, you know, not that there's any sort of negative reason why someone might not include their fees, but it always rubs me the wrong way. Like transparency is huge for me. And so what would be the reason not to include fees? And I know there's arguments that, that, you know, you can go in circles around whether, you know, people suffer from sticker shock, but once you explain it to them, they're more willing to, to do so. But I always feel the people who are going to balk at fees in that manner are, are going to be a little nitpicky around them to begin with and, and maybe, maybe don't see the full value or, it, you know, don't value the, the service as much as, as maybe you would like them to, <laughs> which creates kind of some, some potential issues later down the road. So I, kn- I know the, the, the fear, the concern for some advisors though is, but I have to meet with them and show them the value right. so that they'll want to pay the fee. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you say the fee up front and you scare them off, like you, you would have gotten them if they'd only come to that meeting, but you scared them off before the meeting. Do you not think that's valid or you just don't worry about that or eh, you lose some, but at least I also don't have to talk to a bunch of tire kickers. So it's <laughs> worth it to me. Like how, how do you, how do you weigh that? I think it is appropriate in instances. I think for me, it's just not something that I particularly want to spend my time having to worry about or, or go through. Certainly, if you've got a more complex process or there's all sorts of stuff that needs to be explained and you're not maybe not doing as, as great of a job on your website explaining it or you just or it's just a process that's really hard to explain. Sure, I've done what I think is a pretty decent job of outlining the entire process. And if you look at that and you think and it's not worth the money to you, then th- that's OK. But I don't want to spend my time convincing you of that. You know, if you don't right off the bat, if you're going to if that seems like a lot of money to you, that's totally fine. But I don't want to have to spend my time convincing you of, of the value of the process, quite frankly. And for fee structure itself, is this a, like they pay one time up front? Do you like break this into quarterly or, or monthly? Like just how do these five or six thousand dollar fees work? Yeah, so everything is split into even monthly payments over 12 months. I do ask clients to commit to 12 months. There's no like written, it's like not a gym requirement where you have to, you know, sign on for 12 months. And I know some advisors do that and, and there's nothing wrong with it. I just, I've never liked the feeling of that. 
And so I say, look, this is a, you know, at least a 12 month process. And oftentimes, you know, they'll extend beyond that initial 12 months. And so I say, you know, this is the fee. It's it's $6,600 split into to 12 monthly payments or, or whatever the fee is. And then, you know, I, I always make it very clear that just because the, the fee is paid on a monthly basis, that doesn't mean we are meeting and or doing something every month because there oftentimes is confusion around that. You know, the, the process is very front loaded. And then there's several months right in the process where, you know, we don't meet. That's not to say that you can't reach out or we won't talk, but it's not, there's nothing technically scheduled in those months. So it's always just, again, setting expectations is huge. Do you get the problem of clients who sign up on a monthly basis, do all the labor intensive work stuff up front, and then you terminate after three or six months and don't even complete the 12 month cycle and and you kind of get stiffed on the back end of the payment? Fortunately, I have, uh, I've only had, I think, one client who ended or terminated before the 12 months were up. And, and part of that was just her time. She, when she came to me, she was, you know, kind of some, some downtime from her writing projects. And as we started working together, she just got inundated with projects, which is a great thing for her. But she felt that she couldn't commit enough time to the process in our work for, for it to be worth it for her. And, and so, you know, I said, yeah, I, I totally understand. No worries. We can call it a day. You know, I, I don't re- ever require clients to, you know, pay any sort of outstanding balance. I just kind of, you know, eat the cost because I also want to create that that goodwill that, hey, I would really love to work with you again in the future and maybe kind of on a, on a more extended basis. So that hasn't been a problem so far. I've done a better job of explaining the process. And again, and, and having, you know, a copywriter and, and with this relaunch that I went through this past August, I think I've done a, a pretty decent job of explaining what the process is and kind of trying to create that value proposition that, that it makes it a little easier for them to digest and be like, oh yeah, sure. Let's definitely do this 12 month process. And the time flies as I was, as we were talking just now, I, I saw a thing come across my computer as a note from a client saying 12 months are here already. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> it flies by and people are like, oh crap, didn't realize that it had been 12 months. <laughs> and I, to me, just it's worth recognizing even for saying like, yeah, I did have a client who went through and did part of the process and then terminated before the end of the 12 month cycle. Like she wasn't gaming the system. Like I'm going to, I'm going to get all the front end load of work and I'm going to terminate before I have to pay the rest of the fee. Just like life happened and she got busy and, and said, I don't, I just don't think this is working. Maybe, maybe we need to move on. And, and, and you parted ways. I guess the reality as well is still when you're so upfront about the fees and they literally have to put on their like Calendly scheduling, you do you understand the fees type? Yes. Like you're kind of screening out people who are playing to game the system. Like at some point, if, if, if that's your mentality as a client, like there's probably just easier marks than boy, they're kind of really upfront with their fees. And I actually have to type. Yes. I understand what the fees are going to be like, just if it's someone who wants to take advantage of it, they're going to move on. Right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so for clients who do want to move forward, it sounds like you, you send them a follow-up after the discovery meeting to say, would you like to move forward if yes, they they get their advisory agreement at that point? And like they they the actual sort of sign-up process isn't a sale at the meeting. It it happens as a follow-up to the meeting. If you'd like to move forward, then we can get started on the paperwork. Yeah, I always encourage them to have a conversation, especially if it's a couple, just to talk through, you know, to make sure that they're ready to commit to it because, you know, it is a process. And, you know, as a lot of them are are recognizing though they're not expecting kind of the the quote unquote therapy element of it and, and that it leans more towards the the softer side of things, 
they're quickly realizing how beneficial it can be for them. But I always want them to sleep on it, you know, make sure that they're ready for it financially, mentally. And so I like to give them the time to do that. And if, you know, then they get back to me and say, let's move forward. I feel good about that. I feel like they're ready to commit. They're, they're here to do it. So we do the full onboarding, you know, set them up, get them over the DocuSign, the advice pay, you know, schedule the next meeting. And I, then I send them the, uh, the three questions, essentially having them do that prior to, to the vision meeting. And that gets that process started. And so for those who aren't familiar maybe with Kinder's process, can you just talk about quickly like what what are the three questions that you keep mentioning you you send to them, particularly since I think you said you you adjusted them a little bit from George's standard? Just a hair. And it was more or less to to be more in alignment with my target demographic, which might be a little bit different than the people that George had been originally thinking of or about. <laughs> But uh, the three questions really are, are aimed at, at helping clients to, to really uncover what is truly and deeply important to them. And it's a series of questions that get a little bit more intimate and, and hard hitting. And so, the, you know, the first question basically is, you know, the way I frame it is, you know, imagine you're sitting in your favorite chair, back to your monthly financial check-in. I mean, quite honestly, who actually does that? But, uh, you know, client logs into the bank account. They've got enough money to, to provide for all of their needs for the rest of their life. You know, they're not Warren Buffett rich but they don't have to worry about money. You know, so then the question to them is, how would you live your life and would you change anything? You know, and so th- that starts and they think, okay, you know, I, I suppose I could do X, Y, and Z. Maybe I wouldn't work as much or, you know, I would volunteer more and, you know, those types of, of things. That gets interesting when you're working with creatives where yes. you say, you know, if you're, if you're sitting in the chair and you have enough money, what would you do? It's often still something with the creative endeavor. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, they do it for work, but they often also do it for passion because it's part of what they do to get that creative energy out. Exactly. Oftentimes it's, I would stop working on projects that I am not passionate about and I would only work on projects I am passionate about. <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of times it's, it's giving back, it's volunteering and, and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the question goes on and then we get to the, you know, that second question, which is, you know, back in their current financial reality. Doctor tells them they've got five to 10 years left to live. Good news is, won't feel sick. Bad news is, they don't know when it's going to happen. So basically, you know, with five to 10 years left of life, you know, will they change anything in their life? And, and if so, what would what would they change? So that's, that leads into the third and more oftentimes devastating question for folks, especially what I've learned, you know, parents is, you know, instead of having the five to 10 years left to live, now you've only got 24 hours to live. And so reflecting on life, it's not a matter of what would you do in those last 24 hours? It's, you know, what dreams did, did you not get to live into? Who did you not get to be? What did you not get to do? And that question tends to have the most impact. And certainly you see kind of themes from the first to the second to the third question, but that's where it really distills down to those things in life that maybe they are putting on the back burner, they're not thinking about, or things that they've always been told or, or thought they wouldn't be able to pursue or achieve. That's when that stuff comes out. And, and that's where I get to have fun and, and kind of help them realize that a lot of those things that they thought weren't possible or that they haven't been able to do, like, let's focus on that. Let's bring that to the table. And that's where you see a huge shift. Like, that's like, like the light in their eyes is like, wait, these things are possible. Like, I, I can actually do these things. And that's for me as an advisor is, is where like, I'm like a kid in a candy store. So then what happens in the next meeting? Like we've gotten through discovery meeting. They've said yes. They got the DocuSign, the advice pay. They're set up to pay their fees. They got their three questions. I guess they're like they're filling it out as homework mm-hmm. to think about and bring with them. So take me through what happens now in the next meeting itself. So the vision meeting is where we get together 
and go through the answers to their to their three questions. And again, it's it's not a lot of me talking. It's it's me prompting them to to you know dig a little bit further. And it's listening to to their answers again without judgment, with with an open heart, with empathy and understanding. You know, some of these things that they are potentially sharing are things that they are maybe embarrassed by, or even ashamed by, or what have you. And so, kind of creating a space for them to air that stuff. And like I said, just asking questions that are helping them to dig a little bit deeper behind the meaning sometimes of those things that are important to them helping them to kind of pull that out and truly get to the heart and core of, you know, what those things are, what they mean to them and how important they are so we can include them in the plan itself. And then we use that to kind of create a vision for them, right? We kind of paint a picture of a moment in time, usually anywhere from like a year to two years from now, pulling out, extrapolating those things and painting that picture. It's like, oh, you know, imagine it at time, you know, 15 months from now, You've just gotten married. You're sitting on the porch of your new home out in the mountainside. You know, you've just gotten a call from your boss that you got that promotion. So you're painting this picture. Like, I'm not doing a great job right now, but like you're painting a vivid picture for them to to really sit in and imagine all of these things that they've just expressed to you that are deeply important to them. So it's kind of creating this tangible almost thing that they can touch and feel. And that is like my affixing the carrot to the stick moment, right? You've created this vision and now you've got the carrot and you've affixed it to the stick. And so you can kind of, you've got the stick there with the carrot hanging. And that is then what they are going after, right? They're trying to get that carrot through the rest of the, you know, process and, and putting these things into place and, and, you know, the actual planning side of it. So how does this meeting end? What's the culmination or conclusion of the meeting? So the, the culmination of the meeting is is really asking them to sit in the vision. I think everyone's natural inclination after that is to just poke holes in it and say, but that's not possible. You know, that's not reality. That was a fantastical dream. And so it's really encouraging them to, to not go to that place. It's saying, you know, sit in this vision, literally live it, dream it, feel it, keep it positive. Because the next meeting is what I call the obstacles and organization meeting. So it's kind of a combo of... The obstacles basically is where we take a look at all of the things that they want to accomplish in this vision. And they tell them, you know, they basically tell me what could possibly get in the way. You know, they want to buy a house. What could get in the way? Oh, well, you know, the housing market. So external, internal factors. And we go through this and we say, okay, what can you do about it? You know, who can hold you accountable? When are you going to talk to you? Come up with a game plan for every single obstacle that they can throw in the mix that might get in the way. So that way, when an obstacle inevitably shows up, They've got a game plan ready to just power through it, right? So at that point, there's like there's no excuse for just trucking ahead and getting what they actually want. So there's that angle of it, and then we transition from that side of it to a more of the technical organization side of things, and you know start with all the data gathering. So really, the first you know two and a half meetings are all kind of what I call the touchy feely. We don't talk numbers, we don't talk anything related to actual finances, you know. And so that organization part is, is purely just data gathering, going through the information, asking you know for all the statements, etc., because that sets up the next meeting to start talking about more of the actual technical planning side of it. So I'm I'm struck by this relative to I think where where most most of us are in our client process where the data gathering usually comes a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. Right, some of us that literally is part of the discovery meeting. Right, some that's before the discovery meeting. You know, fill this PDF out before you come into our office so we understand your situation for the conversation. If not, it's it's usually the first thing we do after they say yes. It's like okay, in order to get on board with the client, please fill out this this form or this paperwork or this information. So I'm, I'm just 
I'm struck that this starts for you not until meeting number three. Right. And I do have I, I do have folks complete kind of what I call like a prospect questionnaire prior to the discovery meeting. But it's very basic. It's I want to know what their income situation is. You know, if they're W-2, if they've got an S-corp, if they're sole props, you know, asking about if they have stock options, you know, rental investment property, any of those types of details and balances. But it's only for me to understand where they are. And part of it is also just can they afford to work with me? And, and that is also a really tricky, loaded question for me because I hate this idea of guard, you know, guard keeping, like having this like minimum, but also recognizing that I run a business. And so it helps me to understand, you know, if they aren't a good fit or if they have a situation that maybe isn't in my wheelhouse, that during that discovery call, I can let them know, hey, look, I can give you as much information as I can on this call, but you're not a good fit and then send them on their way. Or, you know, so for, for the most part, the bare minimum is, you know, are they able to afford my fee? And, you know, are they in my niche? Those two things. And if the answer is yes, like none of the financials really matter at that point. You know, I also don't want that to taint the vision. You know, this idea of like, oh, this is the vision. This is what you want to do. But, oh, you've got no assets and you've got, you know, you've got high income. But so I don't want there to be any of, of that involved. And so at that point, it's OK. So these were your this, these are your dreams. How do we then take the resources you have to make that happen? OK. And so so then what comes next as we go down this road? So once we get all the uh, data and information from them, I tend to be pretty heavy on on cash flow analysis. And part of that is just so they understand where their money goes and, and also where it comes from. And so again, when you have a, a pretty unpredictable or, or wonky cash flow, for a lot of people, it's it's tough to understand the cash flow. Right. Just when you've got high income and highly volatile income, you really need to understand where the money goes because you... You have to have a plan for like, and what happens if your $400,000 income goes to zero next year because the show you're writing for gets canceled? Right. And similarly, you know, when you have these fluctuating income years, you tend to have fluctuating expenses as well. And for a lot of people, that's, that's very difficult psychologically. This swing from, you know, being able to afford, a, you know, a more luxury lifestyle to the next year being like, okay, we've got to, you know, live on fast food maybe for a couple of months. And so that can definitely create a lot of negative feelings and emotions. And so it's this idea of coming up with a baseline essentially. And so that's why I like to go through previous cash flow to figure out where the spending has has been. And just how do you dig in with clients who may not know what their spending is in the first place, right? There's sort of this presumption like we can dig in their cash flow and actually figure out what it is. Do you just tend to have clients who have a pretty good handle on that or do you have a process about how you how you dig in to figure it out? So they usually have no clue. And part of that is because of the fluctuating income. I try to go through at least six months of previous cash flow. And sometimes, you know, it's not to say it's like stock market, right? Previous spending doesn't predict future spending. Sometimes it does. But the idea is it's trying to, I'll go through it. I categorize it all. And I come up, you know, with a summary. So, okay, this is what you've, you've been spending on on housing. This is what you've been spending on on food and dining out. So I go through and I use e-money for this because unfortunately right now it is the best of, of a bunch of crappy tools to do this. But I will go through it and actually create an analysis and I'll export it to Excel and get real nerdy with it to help them understand because once they see what they're spending and where they're spending it on, they can be more conscious of it. Like they don't, you know, if you're spending too much money on in a certain area and this is for them to decide, certainly not me, if they feel like they're spending too much money in a certain area, this is where they have that understanding of, oh, wow, we spend a lot of money on X. Maybe we should not do that. And it creates more of that value alignment. And, you know, I kind of jokingly say like, it's, it's like Marie Kondoing your finances, you go through, it's like, where am I spending money that it's not bringing me joy and that like, I'm not, I'm not enjoying. 
And then you're able to more readily stop spending money there, or at least take an extra second to think about it before you spend it. So walk me through a little bit more of just the process of literally like, how do you do this within e-money? Like just you connect in their bank accounts on account aggregation and it pulls enough historical data that you can just plow right in and, and figure this out and categorize it for them? For the most part, you know, e-money is not without its faults. I mean, any third-party data aggregator is going to have its issues. They link their accounts. Whether they stay linked is always questionable. You know, and I found certain institutions are much better at, at providing more data. Worse is when an account will only pull in three months of data. And so that gets a little tricky. And so if, if a client is having is struggling with their cash flow and understanding, I will do like I will have them export transactions from their institution into Excel and I will manually do it, which is not my favorite thing. But, you know, sometimes it just has to be done. But oftentimes there will be enough data in any e-money once they successfully link their accounts for me to be able to go through all of that history. And any money does its best to auto categorize. It's not always great. I mean, my favorite is when it categorizes bars as childcare. <laughs> I always just find these. Well, exactly. No, this is a no judgment zone. <laughs> but it's like the system just does it. I'm like, well, I guess I could be appropriate in some instances. So, you know, it'll go through, it'll auto categorize, and you can create your own rules. So it is not without its flaws and, and could it be improved dramatically. But I also have to recognize that most financial planning software wasn't meant to do this. It had a different purpose behind it and it wasn't necessarily meant to go this deep or custom into, you know, clients' finances like this, you know, that's proven by like, you can't put in an emergency fund goal, any money, like there's just no good way to go about it. And for me, it's like, that is like the fundamental basics of financial planning. Why can this not happen in this software? So this process of categorizing spending, I guess, comes like between meeting number three and number four, because you're just, you're gathering some of the data in meeting three, you're getting them connected to e-money and then after three, but before four is where you're digging in to actually figure out where's their cash flow going and 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 where's it been allocated, or like you getting it before so you can talk about it in meeting three. So I get it after meeting three. And so then meeting four is the money flow meeting. And I stole that from Mono Financial Life Design because I thought it was so brilliant, the money flow meeting. Basically, we get together in that meeting and it is just for the money flow. And that is where we take a look at their spending history. We set up a spending plan, right? And so that is based off of previous spending, but it also takes into account, you know, okay, you've got to up your 401k, you've got to, you know, up your savings to, to this, to that. And then we create a spending plan moving forward. And that's, you know, what they would use to track spending. But the other side of it also is that oftentimes clients just have, they don't understand the flow of their money because they've got so many miscellaneous accounts. And especially if you're working with a couple who hasn't joined finances yet. So the other part of that is saying, okay, let's get an, an ideal account structure set up in a process. Okay. You get a paycheck, let's deposit it into this account and have, you know, and have the monies kind of splinter out into these other X accounts. So it's creating the process also for the money to flow between their accounts to their savings targets, et cetera. And so you'll actually start talking about how we're how we're going to split this up. Like we're, we're gonna we're gonna go open another bank account for as the the main inflow account. You're going to change your direct deposits to go this. Then we're going to create automatic transfers to go to this retirement account or this college plan or this short term savings account. Like you're 
you're literally creating and setting up that accounts structure for them, that cash flow accounts structure. Exactly. And that's, you know, it's it's a little bit of trial and error. And so that's what the importance of that meeting is, is figuring out what is going to work for them. Sometimes it's having, you know, money is just flow directly from their paycheck to a separate account. Sometimes it's having, you know, like you said, it, it kind of just like a main hub account where all the money goes in and then splinters out, but no money is like, there's no like transactions necessarily out of that account. So it, it depends on clients. And, you know, sometimes I have clients who the thought of having multiple accounts gives them seizures. So they're like, I can't do that. And so then we have to figure out an alternative that's going to work for their situation. So sure, on the planning end of it, I can come up with a structure that on paper makes perfect sense and the easy way to do it. But it's not about me. You know, if it's not going to work for them for whatever reason, we have to come up with an alternative solution. And so that's what we do. And so sometimes it's opening a ton of accounts and sometimes it's closing a ton of accounts, just depending on on what works for for them. But the whole focus of this meeting number four like, is just talking about cash flow and where the household money goes. Correct. Okay. Which, which again, I get particularly in the context of working with creatives where cash flow is volatile and there's a lot of, of financial insecurity or financial instability, like it's a big deal to get to the bottom of this and get them comfortable with it. Yes. Because what I, what I notice about a lot of creative clients who have S corporations, when they first start working with me, it's they've amassed a ton of cash that is just hanging out in their business account for no good reason. And these aren't people who need inventory or anything. They're a service-based business as a writer or a producer. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> You've got $300,000 of cash in your business checking account from 2019. <laughs> yeah. So a big part of it for them is setting up a process to get the money out of the S corporation and into their personal stuff. So it was like, hey, did you know that you could fully fund your kid's education if you just took this cash into this and you could fully do this? And they're like, wait, really? Like I could just fully fund all of that with this. And I'm like, yeah, so let's do that on a more regular basis now instead of just letting it pile up in there so that way we get it into the market or we get it into savings and we get it into a vehicle that's going to be most conducive for growth or whatever it needs to do. So then what comes next? You have this really focused meeting around cash flow and spending and where are the dollars going? What's the next meeting after that in the process? So that's where we do, I guess technically it's the plan delivery. So that's like the technical analysis and the execution meeting. And so, you know, my job after that money flow meeting is to go back and crunch the numbers, so to speak. But that's when I actually put together the plan itself, right? We've got, now we've got all of the the goals, you know, that they're saving for. We've we figured out what all of those are. We know what their cash flow situation is and their spending plan is. So then we say, okay, based on all of these things, the goal was you wanted to buy this house for this much at this time. You wanted to fund education to this point. You wanted to save for travel for this. And so I actually put together the plan that says, okay, here's, here's the investment strategy. Here's the account we need to open. Here's the money we need to transfer. So it's creating the actual plan itself to execute and start to actually take action on. And so that's when we get together and, and really start to go through that action item list. You know, it's, hey, reach out to so-and-so and get, you know, a term life insurance policy. Here's an estate planning attorney. You've got to get all this stuff squared away. And that's when I hit them with like all of their to-do items. And how do you actually cue this up and deliver it? Are you a like create a comprehensive financial plan that's printed and delivered? Do you do it all like interactively with e-money on the big screen? Are you a, you know, Carl Richard style one page financial plan? Like what, what do you actually deliver in the plan delivery meeting? So what I have found is that there is no one way. It is slightly dependent on the client. 
kind of their communication style and the way that they receive information. And so I have clients where I've just, I just do the e-money interactive on-screen thing and that's worked out beautifully. I have clients where I put together a 15 page obscenely detailed, aesthetically pleasing plan. <laughs> and then I have clients who I just do like a, a two pager for. And so to some extent, it really depends on, on what they need. Because the reality is this is a living, breathing document, right? It's not as if it's, it, it represents a moment in time, but next week we're probably going to make changes to it. And the week after that, more changes. So the idea is it's kind of just a central repository for the information to use kind of as our springboard for making, you know, implementing and making changes. It's like a lot of what we do in planning is somewhat like trial by error, figuring out what's going to work, what didn't work, and how to, to adjust. And how do you decide who's getting what? And just like, do you literally ask them like, hey, would you, would you like the long plan or the short plan? Because <laughs> I can imagine, I mean, there's some clients, right? I, I could just ask them that and they'll be like, oh, I need all the details. Like, oh, oh God, please don't send me a long document. Like I, I need this in two pages or less. Like how, how, do you, how do you decide which one you're bringing to them? Part of it really depends on the information and what they, where we are in that part of the process. So sometimes it can become disjointed, right? Where we may not actually tackle the full scope of the plan at this point. And so part of it is me gauging the client, which is definitely an art of learning how to read people and pick that up. I oftentimes will ask clients, and, and I say this you know, with the understanding that they may not know how to answer and they may not know what they need, but oftentimes I will ask, you know, what information can I share with you that'll be most beneficial? How would you prefer to have this information presented to you, right? So if someone knows that they're a visual learner, great, I know how to start that. If someone says, cool conversation, just tell me what to do, I'm on it, great, we'll go with that. So it's a little bit of just kind of figuring it out on the fly, Worst case scenario, I just do the whole kit and caboodle and that's that. And if you're asking them about this, I guess just this comes up in you know, me- meeting number three or number four along the way that, that at some point you're saying, like, hey, you know, the, the next meeting I'm going to be digging in and, and you know, really presenting you a plan with some recommendations. How would you like me to deliver this information to you? Right, exactly. So typically at the end of meeting four, the money flow meeting, we'll have that discussion around you know what information would be helpful for them. In regards to their planning, and that you know, it, it also depends on exactly what we're we're planning for, right? So, a client who has all of their insurance, estate planning, retirement, all in check, we don't need to do the full, you know, whole plan because most of that stuff's already handled. So, we might, I might just do, you know, a, a cash flow projection, you know, a, a home purchase analysis, and and give them kind of a, a smaller portion of it specific to exactly what they need to work on. And does that kind of wrap up the planning process? Because we're now at the we delivered the plan or are there are there more meetings that come hereafter to continue the process? So there's two more meetings that come after that part of the process. So typically speaking, that's at like month four-ish. And then, you know, two to three months later, we'll do what I call the gut check meeting. And so basically the process between, you know, that analysis execution meeting and the gut check meeting is, is a lot of the implementation, right? That's the, you know, going and getting the insurance, setting up this account and that account, talking with your employer and changing your benefits to this. It's a lot of that. It's with the gut check meeting. We basically check back in and say, okay, here is what we outlined. These are the adjustments we were going to make. This is the spending plan and kind of just doing a cross-reference. How did, how did it shake out? You know, what was working? What didn't work? You know, what were you able to work through and accomplish? What is still remaining on the table? How are you feeling about it? Has life changed? And what's been really fascinating, you know, because I just implemented this process last year, is that a lot of what was happening in these meetings is likely influenced by COVID and being at home and this kind of quote unquote new normal and not knowing exactly what's going to happen 
12 months from now. And so a lot of this gut check, a lot of these gut checks meetings are, are super helpful because people are starting to see how life is going to shift and change, especially as of late, as we kind of are starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And so that's really our time to check in and say, how is it feeling? What are we missing? Is there something lingering that, you know, you didn't, you know, that we didn't discuss or put on the table or something, has something shifted? You know, is, is this thing you really wanted to do still something that you really want to do? You know, those types of questions. And then you said there's usually two more meetings, like one more after this. What what comes after gut check? So that's the 12-month review meeting. And so that's where we get together, you know, at the 12-month mark. We summarize what we have worked on to date. And then we take a look at the next 12 months. You know, are there any holdover tasks that need to, to be, you know, completed still? And oftentimes that is a yes, because life gets busy. And though people think, oh, we'll power through this, it never happens like that. And so at that point, we reassess. We say, okay, where are we now? Where do you want to go? It's a little bit like the gut check meeting. You know, what's working? What's not working? You know, what's going to happen this next 12 months? And, you know, as we know, like nothing in life ever sits still. And it's always like, oh, hey, you know, clients kind of, you know, fell off the face of the earth. And I got a little concerned and I, I reached back out to them and they're like, oh, hey, sorry. Uh, you know, they they had two failed adoptions and, you know, were just in a really bad place. And like, oh my God, we got a call. We got a, a baby. We've had a fly out. We've got a baby. We came home. And so everything shifted in that moment like that. And it was like, okay, well, we are planning for a completely different situation now. Right. So usually, you know, we look at that 12 months and say, okay, there's a lot that's likely going to happen in this next 12 months. And we start to get proactive about planning for it, adjusting for it and setting things up. Right. And I guess particularly when you're working with just clients in their working years and particularly clients at these kind of peak earnings years with lots that's changing because they're creative. So gigs come and go and opportunities come and go. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff can change in their lives in 12 months. I mean, I'm thinking of this relative to like retired clients Mm -hmm. where like not a lot necessarily changing in 12 months. I mean, retirement transition is big, but you know, my, my client who's five years into retirement usually doesn't have a big wave of change that comes in the sixth year of retirement. My your 42 year old client can have three different world changes by five years into the relationship. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, you know, these clients, you know, they've been staying clients, like even past that 12 months is just the recognizing that life shifts and change and it, it does so unpredictably. So now help me understand the, the overall business model then in, in this context, you, you'd, you talked about this, this fee initially, like $5,400 for an individual, $6,600 for a couple, you know, it's nominally a 12 month commitment. So do they renew the same way? Do they renew at the same fees? Is it different? Cause it's not the first year process. Like how does it work after year one? They renew and the fees do stay the same. And part of that is quite frankly, the first year, even though, you know, 6,600 might seem like a lot of money, the amount of work that goes into it, you know, you typically don't actually become profitable until that second year. And so typically speaking, you know, fees don't change. And and like we were mentioning, you know, life changes, it shifts, especially with the clients I work with. And it's always like, oh, we think it's going to be a calm year, but that's never the case. You know, rarely is it like, oh, sorry, I spent, you know, less hours working with you this year than I did last year. It's, that's never the case. So yeah, generally speaking, fees stay the same, you know, unless there was some sort of transition to like save retirement. But again, I'm, I'm steering clear of working with people who are at that phase in their life. So just from, you know, my experience over the last couple of years as owning this firm, nothing ever gets simpler or easier. So typically speaking, it, it all stays the same. And you had mentioned earlier that the firm, in addition to having ongoing advice fees, has 15 plus million dollars under management. So are you, is there 
also an AUM component to the business model? Do you just bundle the investment management in by the time you're paying me $600 a year, I'll, I'll just manage whatever your portfolio is as well? Like, How are you handling the investment management portion when some of these people do have you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars taking a checking account? Right. Like there, is, there is investment management stuff to be done for at least some of them. Yeah. So I, I do include some amount of investment management in the base planning fee. I don't require clients to have me manage their, their assets. I know some advisors kind of make it mandatory. I, that's, you know, it's not how I run, unless they're like making like very horrible, terrible decisions. But quite frankly, half my clients don't even have assets yet. So that's not even a question, you know, and something you've talked about a lot and a lot of advisors talked about this idea, you know, when we look at fees, you know, the typical way of, of offering planning was, hey, you've got a million dollars. Great. I'll charge you 1% and I'll throw in planning for free. I hate that approach. And I know it's kind of mental gymnastics. We sometimes play with clients because they don't realize that $10,000 and 1% of a million are the same thing. And so the way I approach it now is I wanted to kind of flip that on its head. And so I say, you know, your flat fee is, you know, 6,600 for a couple. And that is for financial alignment planning. But hey, I will throw in the first $500,000 of investment management in that fee. Right. So again, it's placing the emphasis that the fee is for the planning and I am doing the investment management, quote unquote, for free. And then basically anything above 500K is billed at 60 bips a year. Okay. Interesting. So I like the blend, right? A lot of us, we do the investment management and a planning fee, but if you have enough in assets, I'll waive the fee. Or if, you know, we'll do a basic plan, but if you've got a lot of complexity, there'll be a separate financial planning fee charge. I'm struck just the way you come at it from the other end. Like, no, our, our, our planning fee is our planning fee. We throw in the first five hundred thousand dollars investment management, and we bill you above. You know, I, I could frame it as, you know, we just have a sixty six hundred dollar minimum on our five hundred thousand dollar investment model. But I, I like that you come at it from a different direction. It's certainly not what a lot of others do, but makes sense to me in what you're framing and who you're talking to as clients. Yeah, I really want them to understand that the emphasis is on the planning. The investments, of course, are an, an integral, important part of the process, but that is not where we focus. That is just a piece of, of the overall you know, puzzle, so to speak. One, and likewise, it's not as though your fee, your minimum, your flat fee is just what the fee would have been on the first 500,000, right? If you're, if you're billing at 60 bips, like 60 bips on 500,000 would be only $3,000, but you were charging 6,600. Like there's a lot more planning stuff that's happening here, mm -hmm. comma, and we'll cover the first half million dollars of your assets without a separate fee. Right. And part of that, you know, is it creates this stickiness of, of the relationship as well. So, you know, I do have a, you know, a, a solid subset of those clients who have a minimum planning fee and I manage, you know, their portfolio, but their portfolio doesn't, you know, isn't 500,000. It might be say 250, Right. So again, being able to kind of wrap that that portfolio into into the mix, even though it doesn't kind of hit that 500K mark, creates more of that stickiness. Right. So it's not just the planning. You know, I think people have a hard time digesting, you know, a six thousand dollar, sixty six hundred dollar a year fee. And that's one of the big things with this this model of subscription or you know monthly fees is the stickiness and the the client attrition and actually keeping clients for any you know reasonable period of time. And so to some extent, this was my way of trying to bridge that gap a little bit. What surprised you the most about building your own advisory business and, and going through this journey, particularly since I know you you know you had a history of being in the industry for many years in the employee and before you went out on your own to to start Equalese. So like what, what surprised you the most about 
building your own firm and, and running your own business. That people willingly chose to work with me. <laughs> oh, my self-deprecating humor. No, I mean, that that was a, a big concern. You know, I didn't start my firm with a whole lot of confidence, quite frankly. It was it was a necessity born out of a situation that that went bad. And so that was always my concern is, you know, at the time I was you know, in my early 30s, but I've always looked like I was 12. So I was like, who's going to look at my photo and be like, yes, she's the one I want to work with. You know, I didn't think people would take me seriously. And so the fact that I was getting people twice my age who were making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, you know, that wanted to work with me and, and chose to to reach out to me and say, hey, I'd, I'd really love to kind of interview you as an advisor and then move forward in hiring me was a little confusing. I've learned to accept it. That's not in my nature to be that way. But, you know, I think that was probably the biggest surprise is how much people were willing to to give me a shot, to give me a chance to to kind of prove to them what I was capable of. Like why? I guess I'm wondering, like, why? <laughs> like, why, why do you think it turned out that way? I, I mean, just like, was there something you missed between how you you know, thought you were coming across to prospective clients and how apparently you were coming across to prospective clients? Yeah. I mean, I have not had the easiest path in life. And so, you know, anytime something feels like it, it is not easy, but that it's, it's going right. I, I question it. I'm kind of like, this isn't how things were supposed to go. I'm, I'm a little confused by this. You know, people, I think the empathy part is huge. You know, when you show someone even an ounce of empathy because they're just so not used to it, that goes a long way. I think my story resonates with a lot of the people who reach out to me. I'm certainly not the advisor for everyone. And, and I think that, you know, based on who reaches out to me, there is definitely a common thread. There are several common threads there. And I think I've I've learned to accept that I I do provide value and I am good at what I do, which is uh, hard to say because I don't have middle-aged white man confidence. <laughs> But I think I do a pretty good job of, of helping people to work through their money stuff and providing a platform and a, and a, a safe space, really. And I think that that probably shows through. And, and I, as more people you know, mention that to me, I'm, I'm, I'm learning to accept it as, as truth. The fact that I'm, I'm empathetic and I listen, I think, is, is taking me a long way. So what was the low point in your career journey through being an advisor and ultimately launching your own business? I don't know if it's from the business stage or the before stage. You know, I, uh, I had a failed succession plan with a mentor of mine. I, it's one, you know, it's one of those things where you don't know someone until you know them. And I think we both understood that of, of each other. And so I, I, I bopped around from firm to firm you know, and, and at some point, you know, about eight years into my career, I had my come to Jesus moment where I realized I was just not cut out for employee work. You know, I grew up in, a, in an extremely volatile environment, both, you know, emotionally and, and financially. And I was a middle child between two brothers who could not keep themselves out of, out of trouble. And so, you know, I learned for better or worse at that point to be fiercely independent. And so at that point, you know, I, I realized that being an employee and especially like being micromanaged was was not something that I, I, I could see myself doing. And so, you know, I approached a, a former mentor of mine and we tried to work out, you know, an arrangement and it just it all kind of imploded after a year of, of working together. And so 
I started my firm reluctantly because I didn't really have a choice because at that point I hadn't had a job for a year and I realized that I probably would get fired if I tried to get another job at a, at a firm. And so I kind of decided at that moment, you know, it's now or never start the firm or, you know, or kind of retreat into your, your shell. So I started the firm and it, it was a really difficult decision because at that point, you know, when I started and officially launched in January of 2017, I had $35,000 of credit card debt from this failed succession plan of thinking they was going to quote unquote pay off once I had revenue. <laughs> and by the end of my first year in business of December 2017, that had ballooned to, to $50,000. And so when I started, you know, when January 1st, 2018 rolled around, you know, I, here I am struggling, you know, $50,000 in credit card debt, just like having this moment of what the hell did I do? you know, what has this last two years been? And I would say that was probably the lowest point of just trying to to reconcile the decisions I had made and the position I had put myself in. That was a really tough time for me. And so in retrospect, like what, what didn't work about the succession plan? Like just was there something about going into it that you, that you missed or something you would at least do different in retrospect? Like what, what didn't line up? Because obviously you went into it expecting it was going to work and <laughs> ended out very far from there in relatively short order. So right. like what, what happened or, or what didn't happen the way that you expected or envisioned it in your head? I think we were just fundamentally very different people with very different approaches to, to business and to financial planning. She, you know, what I learned was very much focused on the investment side of the things, whereas I was very much focused on the planning side of things. And I started to realize there was a really big disconnect between how she worked with her clients and how I envisioned myself working with them. And I think as we started to learn this about each other and kind of each other's approaches and what we were trying to accomplish, just realized it wasn't a good fit. And in hindsight, I, I think it was a blessing in disguise because though her clients were all very lovely people, I couldn't imagine myself working with the majority of them on a long-term basis. And for me, you know, this idea of a succession plan was security, right? It was stability, knowing I was kind of buying into something that was stable, that had proven cash flow, that didn't mean I was going to have to start from, from scratch. You know, part of that was a confidence question. But at the end of the day, you know, I was, I was forced to do that. And, and fortunately, everything turned out just fine. I couldn't have imagined it going this way, but it did. I find that an interesting framing that like the the appeal of the succession plan was security and stability, even though I guess in, in practice it ended out kind of amplifying the opposite right. when, it, <laughs> when it didn't work out yes. that way. But I guess just help me understand more of uh, at least what you were envisioning. Like just I can buy into a, an existing client base and existing revenue, and so I'll just kind of slip right into that, and then that's that's stable and secure. Like was that kind of the mental framework for it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I I come from humble beginnings, call it what you want, poor, didn't have money. And so the idea of being successful or financially stable was something that I only ever dreamed about. It was something I hadn't really experienced. You know, I was raised by a young single mom who relied on on government benefits and and quite frankly, the generosity of others to to get by and we barely got by, you know, so... (laughs) This idea of security has always taunted me to some extent. And, and so think for me, you know, in this kind of childlike mentality of, you know, I, I wanted something that was going to create some sort of safety, you know, so if I bought into this thing, it had the elements there to provide that security, to provide that safety. And, and to some extent, I didn't fully recognize what that meant. And, and again, this is why I think I connect so deeply with some of my clients is this shared 
lack of security and, and yearning or desire for it, that's what it represented to me more than anything was I wasn't going to have to continue to struggle. And it was, it was something that I could, I could use as a springboard to, to be better and to become better and to do more good, essentially. So then how did you ultimately just reconcile or mentally transition to the opposite extreme of like, well, I guess I'm starting my firm from scratch with credit card debt. Yeah, it was a manic weekend. Everything happened on a Friday morning and I spent that weekend like either laughing hysterically or crying (laughs) my face off of just like sheer panic. I had a conversation with a couple of of clients that I had worked with through this other firm and they were so supportive and so sweet. And they basically were just like, you've got to do this. You were meant to do this. You can do it. And they kind of gave me that boost of confidence that I needed. And fortunately, you know, when I was going through the CFP coursework, you know, back in 2010, 11-ish, one of our classes required us to write a business plan for our future, you know, RIA. And so I had this business plan kind of like lingering about that was a legit business plan. Like it kind of wrote out all of the things I wanted to do, who I wanted to work with. And I thought, you know, I've just got to do it. It's going to hurt and it's going to suck, but hopefully it will pay off and I've just got to hang in there. It's, it, it was nothing, you know, I, this is what I was used to. I was used to being the underdog. I was used to being, you know, having the cards stacked against me and, and kind of seemingly having no way out. And so for me, it was like, well, this is just another one of those moments that I'm going to have to figure out how to, how to power through. And, you know, that's essentially how I, I justified it. And I was like, you got to do it. And then I just kind of threw myself into it and, and wouldn't let myself think about any of the, the negative side of it. It was like, nope, one day I'll just, I'll be able to pay this off. One day I'll be able to pay this debt off. And unfortunately I did very quickly, which again, another very fortunate position to be in, but it was not an easy process. How long did it take to just for the situation to turn around where you were feeling more financially secure? Like, was there some point of, oh my gosh, I think this is actually going to work? Yeah. So when I first had that inkling of, of things being okay was May of, of 2019, you know, I was able to get myself into a position where we could afford to move out of our tiny shoebox 400 square foot apartment in Hollywood into something a little bit bigger that would give us space so I could have an office and actually be quote unquote professional and like moving into what I call my first adult house, you know, at 35, 36, however old I was, was kind of a turning point for me mentally in recognizing that like I live in like a real house now, like a real space. So I was renting, like it was the first nice place I had lived where I felt comfortable. And so that's when things started to come together. And then it was... December of 2020, I made that final payment on that 50K of credit card debt. December of 2019, I, I made that final payment. And that's when the relief kind of set in. And I started to really feel I'd gone through it. Like there was a seemingly small amount of security that was starting to build from there because I didn't, I don't have any money at that point in, in the bank, any savings, but I didn't have any debt. And for me, that was huge because, you know, to be completely transparent, I started my debt journey when I was 18 with my first credit card. And from that day, from that first dollar I put on that credit card, there was always a balance from the day I turned 18 until the day, you know, I paid it off in, in December 2019. And that debt went anywhere from, you know, 100 bucks in the early years, but it crept all the way up to 50k over time. So, as you look back on this journey, like what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from 4 or 5 years ago when you were transitioning in? (sighs) What a question. 
I wish I had more confidence and more belief that things were going to turn out the way they did to save me from the heartache, I think, and the 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 fear, the self-loathing, the self-deprecation, the the negative self-talk. You know, a lot of that, of course, built up over years as, as a child, but I wish I had had been more confident in myself and I wish that I was kinder to myself as I went through the process and recognizing that everyone struggles. And I think, you know, something that you've mentioned is there's this illusion that people can just jump and start a firm and, and everything's just perfect and there's no adversity and there's no problems with it. And so much of what we see on the internet is, is you know, that being the case and it truly isn't. And I think, you know, it's doing a disservice to anyone thinking about starting a firm by creating this illusion that it's super easy to do. You just spend a little bit of money, get a website, start up with this, uh, you know, technology. And then people just start calling you and giving you their life savings. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's not how how it works, quite frankly. And, you know, the other thing that I, I really regret missing out on and not pushing myself throughout my entire career, you know, up until I started the firm was the soft side of the business. I was so focused on the technical piece. Like I was like, I got this. I'm always going to be behind the scenes. I can crunch any of the numbers. I like I know how to do all of this stuff to the point where I got a master's in tax because I'm a masochist. Like, like I wanted my technical expertise to be on point. So no one could ever question that. But what I failed to do was to learn how to talk to people effectively or more effectively. And and certainly I am better at it now, but I wish I had had more of that early on. So is, is there other advice you would give to younger, newer advisors coming in today about getting on a better path for some of that? You know, I think it's important to hit both sides of it. The, the technical and the soft side, the soft skills. You know, I think I just read that the CFP board is now, you know, making financial psychology more a part of, of the curriculum and what have you. And so we're starting to, to move in that direction of, of creating more focus on the soft skills and the psychological side of, of money. You know, don't leave one out or the other. You've really got to be well-rounded when it comes to both of those things or you'll stumble, I think. So what comes next for you? What's the goal at this point? Now that you're past the, like, Okay, I'm gonna survive. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm in it. The this this is sticking around. What's the goal from here? Where does it go? Yeah, I've never I've never been one to set concrete goals, and I, I don't know that I ever really will to some extent. I think you know, in my ideal world, I, I want to help everyone. It's it's a it's a blessing and a curse. I want to help as many people as I can, but I also recognize that I I want to to be able to afford the things that that make me happy. And so there's a balance there. And so my plan, you know, in an ideal world is to get to the point where I, I make just as much money as I need to in the business. And, you know, right now I'm, I'm probably there. So I don't necessarily need to grow for myself. You know, there's certainly the option of growing the business to bring on team members to provide opportunities. But at the end of the day, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to be able to have a set amount of clients so I know kind of what my workload is. And I'd like to be able to carve out, you know, a certain amount of hours per per month to work with clients more on a, on a sliding scale and to be able to really have more impact to that area. So a lot of advisors are like, oh, you know, I want to work, you know, 50, 58 days a year and, and go on vacation the rest. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds lovely. But, you know, I, I do want to go on vacation, but I, I think I, I want to do, I want to be able to give back more with my time and the skills that I have, which is an interesting endeavor because the one thing the CFP you know, education doesn't really teach you is how to work with people who don't have money or don't have an, a lot of money. But that's kind of where I see myself going with this firm. And, you know, it, I am hiring an intern for the summer, which is terrifying. And, and I'm doing that through the, the BLX internship, which is an incredible program and opportunity. And so that'll get my feet wet to see whether I want to actually grow the business to the point where I hire people and, and kind of open that platform, so to speak. But it sounds like from the 
from numbers business ends, like when you're at five or six plus thousand dollars a client, a little more for some that have more assets, 45 client relationships, you know, you can generate 250, $300,000 from that, just at that, at that average fee level. Like that's, that's a good place for you for where you want the business to be that you're, you're not feeling the pressure for growing clients at this point. Yeah. And quite honestly, that even seems high again, without hiring, you know, I, I just, I don't, feel the need to make more money than I need. You know, I've, I've committed at this point to, you know, I, I donate 5% of the business profits to a handful of rotating charities, you know, every year. And I, I try and, and do more with the resources I have, you know, of course, saving is super important, but I feel like I've been very fortunate and privileged to be in the position I am. And I just, I don't, I don't see a need to make more money than I actually need to spend or save kind of thing. And that's where the, the ability to free up my time to, to work more on a sliding scale and to be able to offer services to, to people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford them, at least in, in some regard, is really important to me. And so just it's interesting to me that for that journey overall, since you launched the beginning of, of 2017, like it, it, it took four years to get there. Yeah, just about four years. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you know, as you hit this point in your business where it's, it's getting to the income that you want and you're, and you're comfortable with, with where the growth is and you look forward to what's next, like how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah. Jokingly, I, I, <laughs> I always say, say success is when uh, I'm able to make clients cry in the vision meeting. <laughs> It's, it's a joke. I, I kid, I joke, but you know, it's always powerful. But on a real note, you know, success for me is is operating a, a planning firm that is true to who I am and, and my passion. And that ultimately translates into working with clients who are intentional with their resources and, and see the world as something bigger than themselves. That is incredibly important to me. You know, for me, it's if you don't, you know, if you check all the boxes from a niche standpoint, right, you're the creative, you're the LGBTQ, what have you, but you've kind of got this selfish, greedy attitude. Like, I don't care how much money you have, who you are, like, I, I don't want to work with you. That's just not something that I, I vibe with. So it's important to me that I, I work with people who I really relate to, identify with, and, and who are looking to do more, looking to do better, essentially for, for others. And, you know, despite my personal, you know, quote unquote, success in recent years, you know, I, I definitely, as I alluded to earlier, you know, found myself still existing in survival mode, even when I didn't need to. And kind of having that moment of, of clarity, you know, which was really only like six months ago, you know, is finally seeping through in my brain and, and getting there. And so for me, you know, building this firm has afforded me the privilege to live a life I never thought I would have. And success ultimately is being able to pay that forward. I love that. I love that. Success is ultimately the ability to be able to pay it forward. Well, thank you so much, Leanne, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me. I've had a, a really great time. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.